Hey everyone, you're listening to the DMA podcast where we share business confidence for designers. My name is Alan and I am a business designer and founder of the DMA program. And you're welcome to another business design jam where we take business news or business concepts that are relevant to the work of designers and we try to dissect them and see how we can use it as designers. So today I'm joined by two DMB alumni, Tom and James, so Tom Pryor and James Pickerton, who are both design freelancers and actually both also from the UK, which accidentally happened to be two people who I wanted to talk to about this topic. Um, and today we talk about positioning and pricing for design freelancers. So, so how do we price our services, set the terms for payments, choose clients, position ourselves, and so on. So we'll be covering a business topic relevant for designers. And if you would like to learn more about business topics relevant for designers, you're very welcome to join our seven-day mini MBA, which is an email course where over seven days, you receive seven emails. And in each of these emails, you learn a business concept relevant for designers. So to subscribe, head over to d.mba slash mini minus MBA. So now let's dive into the episode. James and Tom, can you tell us what do you do and how do you think about your positioning? Because positioning is one of those very important things that kind of affects our pricing. So I just figured we would start with the positioning uh, to learn about both of you. So maybe James, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Alan. Hi, Tom. So yeah, I... Um, I am a experienced designer, is how I position myself, and I've been working freelance on and off probably for the last twenty years. And the I've started again working as a freelance designer since I would say November of last year in twenty twenty one, and. Before that, I was positioned as a product design lead. That was my positioning as a product design lead. And that Mm -hmm. immediately gives you permission, should we say, to charge a little bit more. Because you're seen as a lead. You're seen as someone who's going to be having client contact, who's going to be leading a team. And that's why I position myself as a lead. I've recently transitioned from product design into service design. That's why I kind of call myself an experienced designer. Also do a little bit of business design as well uh, from working with Mm -hmm. yourself in the course. And I've recently just finished a stint working on the Ivy restaurant, working through their service design problems, uh, which was a great experience. And that again was working as a service design lead, leading a team of three. And that's, I think, yeah. I mean, so for those projects, you're working with consultant. Sorry, are you working with with consultancies? Yes, large, largely with consultancies. Sometimes I'm brought in directly by the client, but I generally work through consultancies. Yeah. Got it. What about you, Tom? Yeah. So yeah. Again, thanks, Alan, for having us on. Uh, James, great to great to meet you. And um, yeah, I've been. Positioning myself as a, I would say, I've avoided the term freelance, I have to say, as a sort of experienced design and strategy consultant for the last five years. So the 10 years previous to that, I was agency side, um, ended up being sort of direct level, direct level at the agency I was at and was very much positioned myself as a sort of senior strategist. But I didn't really have to do the job of positioning myself so much. It was more about the agency I worked for. Um, Mm -hmm. I had my own sort of profile, but it was very much kind of aimed at, I would say, at my peers almost, as far as um, trying to attract talent into the agency, um, talking a lot about the kind of skills and tools I would use um, to try and find sort of alignment with people I wanted to bring into the team and they would recognize we're doing things that they recognize. But I think from a positioning perspective, when I first went freelance contract <laughs> five years ago, I still had that kind of mindset. I was very much positioning myself based on, I guess you would call them the features of a designer, you know, the tools I could use, the processes I went through. Um, 
And I've kind of moved that positioning more towards the outcomes that I offer. So the language that I use now is very much, I think a lot of this is inspired by what I learned on DNBA, um, around the outcomes that I can help someone get to through design. And actually there's not an awful lot on my sort of business website around, you know, I do prototyping or design sprints and stuff like that. You can you can dig in and find that. But I'm really trying to position myself as someone who is a sort of design strategist, mainly working with scale-ups and enterprise teams who want to um, use design to get to some measurable outcomes. And that is something I'm kind of reworking and refining all the time. But it's definitely a positioning shift. Um, a lot of it kind of encouraged by getting more confident in talking about myself in those terms. And I've no doubt that position will change again at some point. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a living thing, right? You're evolving and changing and adjusting also to what's happening on the market. Mm. I would like to hear your perspective on like what entails positioning. Uh, we both, I mean, you both now talked about like how you introduce yourself. Are you a contractor or a freelancer or a lead or like what is the outcome? Is it just the title that's the positioning or is there anything else you try to do to position yourself uh, the way you want to position yourself? Uh, so I guess from Tom, there's something really Im important Tom mentioned there in terms of calling yourself a consultant. That's something that's, I think, really important. And it's something that I was classed as in my last permanent job a consultant and that we were a consultancy rather than a freelancer or contractor because I, I I tend not to use that freelancer word as well because it has a lot of associations around it and the associations are generally picking up a designer from Fiverr or having someone come in as a not always Fiverr but I'd say more of a craftsperson who is probably somewhere in the middle of their career, maybe a little bit earlier, and is definitely not, definitely doesn't align with a strategist, I would say, or someone a little bit senior, more senior. I think it's a really strong point to make when it comes to positioning. It's like the, the language you're using and um, I think using the language of contractor, um, over freelancer is an important first one. I think freelancer is a sort of loaded one as far as the way you might operate, maybe the scale of projects you take on. Um, I think there's a place for people who call themselves freelancers for sure. And I think James has alluded to that, but I think you you kind of are positioning yourself in a different way um, by saying you're a contractor. So I think from a language perspective, I think you're probably more likely to be less measured on maybe time and deliverables and more on the value bring in decision making. That's how I tend, tend to see it. Um, so yeah, it's a term I use, but to your question about, to kind of follow up on that around what, you know, what is positioning for me, it's setting a context of kind of where you see yourself belonging and clients having some, like recognizing the context in which you're positioning yourself. So, for example, um, if I am using the language a lot of just a skill set, a, li a list of skills, I think I'm comparing myself with, like you say, people on Fiverr or people of all different levels in the sort of seniority chart when it comes to design. Mm -hmm. And it becomes quite difficult to kind of distinguish who's, you know, who's going to bring uh, additional value, you know, um, how senior are you? Do you specialize in certain areas? So I think from a positioning perspective, I think language and context is is super important. That context can very often be around um, the industries that you're working, the value that you've delivered um, in a particular industry, for example, and talking some of that language maybe. Um, it kind of moves a little bit into uh, something I think we're going to discuss around the focus versus, you know, are you a generalist or a specialist in a certain area? And I think um, something that I'm becoming more interested in from a positioning perspective is positioning myself in particular industries. 
uh, and really mm. starting to speak the language of a particular industry that either I enjoy working in or want more work in. So starting to allude to challenges they might have and position myself as someone who kind of can relate to that and bring value in that very specific area. I've, I've definitely made, I mean, not necessarily a mistake in the past, but I've definitely suffered from pitching myself a lot as a generalist um, for the fear of missing out on projects. And I'm starting to now realize actually, I wanna bring that in a little bit. So for me, like I say, using language that sets a context that my clients recognize uh, in their industry um, is one area. It's almost like a never ending topic or challenge of should I be a generalist or should I be, should I specialize? It's also like the same thing when you're thinking about entrepreneurship, like, oh, I don't want to just do this one thing. I want to do more things. And maybe it's also about the time perspective, like when you're starting out with being a contractor <laughs> or a freelancer, and when you're starting out in your career, maybe it does make sense to be more of a generalist and then going more into, um, you know, focusing on something. But I would be curious to hear, Tom, your story. So what made you now think that you want to focus on certain industries and what are the first results you're seeing by focusing just on certain type of companies? So the things I've noticed, um, first of all, is I'm the, the leads that are coming in are a bit more focused. I had a very scattergun kind of uh, inbound leads as a, as a contractor. You know, it was junior things with kind of lower date rates or it was, you know, even permanent roles because I wasn't making it clear that I was, a, you know, for hire these are the ways to engage with me. It was very much could be the portfolio for someone who's an, an intern or an internal person who just wants a profile out there rather than a business. So it's been a very different, um, I say, you know, still get those things occasionally, but I'd say the big thing is that um, I get fewer leads, but they tend to be more relevant, um, tend to be those scale ups and enterprise teams that I'm kind of targeting a bit more. Um, I would say I feel far more confident in those conversations as well. So I feel like I, on a personal level, have tried to make my messaging a bit clearer around where I fit. And it means that when I'm kind of pitching myself or having that conversation with clients, it's not so scattergun. They're not expecting me to do a whole raft of things. And I can quite confidently say, don't, you know, you might want someone else for these things but i'm not having to have those conversations so much because i do feel like my messaging is a bit clearer so i'd say that the quality of lead and type have been, have, been, have been more accurate how did you communicate that you work with these industries is this on your linkedin your website how, or is it just because of word of mouth so i've got there's definitely something i need to refine more but i've got stuff on my website at the moment that kind of talks about i specifically don't talk about startups so i talk about the fact that um there's, there's an area on my website around the kind of services and it's like scale-ups and enterprise. Um, I, I kind of start off by talking about that and um, kind of outcome people, businesses that are very um, aware of being outcome focused and they don't just want deliverables from design and kind of that has become a, a, a kind of clear part of my proposition, but also being um, a, a designer who is business savvy. So I think that is a big part of my messaging. If we, if you look at some of the stuff around my approach, I really push the fact that I'm the DMBA. Um, and also I have a side project called Designs in Business, which um, kind of started out, it was a dual thing for me. It was like, I'm genuinely interested in learning more about business, but actually from a positioning perspective, having this small kind of side projects around that has really helped people come to me knowing that I've got some of that acumen and I'm really interested in being involved in business decision-making. Um, and obviously after the DMBA, I felt even more <laughs> confident to, to kind of push that a little bit more as well. So I think that that kind of business angle and wanting to be involved in business decision making is a bit that I'm still working on, but it's definitely starting to become more, more part of what I talk about. Yeah, that's definitely something that everybody should check out. Designers in business. Tom is running like a really interesting newsletter covering business concepts for the design community. Um, how is that for you, James, the jack of all trades versus specialization question? Yeah, I, I definitely have suffered from that as well. And uh, to mirror really what Tom said, it's 
something I think you quite naturally do early on in your career. You want to, you have that fear of missing out on projects. You kind of take on everything that you possibly can and, and start experimenting really in finding where your strengths are and finding exactly what interests you. Which industries interest you? Is it fintech? Is it music? Is it something entirely different? And through that process, you start to specialize. I don't know of anyone actually who specialized right from the offset and said, right, I just want to do fintech and that's all I want to do. Right from going from the first year in their career to doing their 10th year in their career. I often find as well that every couple of years I want to pick up a new skill set or, or peek into a different industry as well. But I definitely say that my focus over the last four, five, maybe six years even has um, been fintech. And that's just quite naturally happened where a friend was in HSBC and he said they need another contractor here. And I said, okay, and came in for an interview. It looked like a good opportunity to completely redesign HSBC's banking app. And I then carried on in that vein because I actually quite enjoyed understanding how money works. I had a terrible knowledge of understanding exactly how the finance industry worked. And it was actually a big reveal working in the industry how how things how much things can be improved should we say and when you start focusing in on one industry you can have or start to have a lot better conversations quality conversations with business people and you start seeing the same patterns of of problems and such and you've almost got the answer to their problem. You can almost give them the outcome um, just within a few minutes of talking and understanding what, what they need or what their problem is. So I, I highly recommend it. But then saying that, I've now gone off on this tangent into luxury dining with the Ivy. And and, that, and that's just that just came out because I, I took some time off uh, from leaving my last permanent position going back to freelancing last November. And I haven't really been looking for anything. I was okay not to actually work for a few months. And it was a service design company that I worked with before. They knew that I could do product design and UX and UI and all that, but they specifically came to me and said, we want you to lead this small team. We want you to do strategy because we actually don't think, James, that your that your strength or the thing that we want to employ you for is... UX, UI and product design, we actually want you to lead the strategy part and, and do that piece. And that was that was interesting to hear from the other side, rather than you selling your skill sets or knowledge from the other side to come to you and say, look, we've been observing you. We know what you've been doing over the last few years. We think actually this is your strength. And I said yes, because it was a really, really great opportunity. And... It actually worked out really well. It was actually nice not to have to worry about how something is going to look, the final product, the final app. It was more interesting actually working in the strategy side of thing. Okay, what is the outcome? What do you want uh, the the service or customer experience of the Ivy restaurant to be in the future? You want your customers to order three more drinks or should we say... I can't. I shouldn't say too much, but um, you want to increase their spend by X, for example. And doing the research and working out exactly what those outcomes are, and focusing on that uh, gave a lot of value back to to my clients and to the team that I work with. And and just and, and being focused and not trying to do everything, not having maybe having an opinion on how something looks from a craft perspective, but actually not sharing it, just focusing on the strategy piece, um, gave a lot more value to the, the client and the team as well. Um, I, th- I pick up on a really interesting point, I think, that James made there around 
you know, you'd been doing fintech work for a while. Um, and I, I don't know whether you're positioning yourself in that area, but I guess your LinkedIn might have looked like you've been doing mm. that for a bit. And then you get picked up by someone like the Ivy, which feels like a complete, you know, completely different world, like super interesting. And I imagine quite refreshing after working in finance for a while. I think that's a really important lesson for people who worry that we talked about this fear of missing out, right? If I don't show that I can do everything, um, I might miss something interesting like that. And that sounds like a great project. Um, there's this like bias of the, the halo bias. Um, that I think we can take advantage of, and that's a good example where if you're strong at a particular area of your craft, say as a designer, you're very good at strategy and fintech or designing fintech, people aren't going to assume that you're rubbish at everything else. They can think that actually that that halo effect of being good at one thing, people tend to assume that you can transfer those yeah. skills. Um, we see it in all kinds of worlds. So I think it's a really important um, kind of great lesson example of like yeah you might position yourself in one area but people are still probably going to reach out to you for other types of work obviously you know that's kind of happened with james so don't be afraid to tighten it up but to your point james about starting off with a broad positioning i think that's generally good advice you don't know what position you're going to want to end up in unless you go broad to start with um there's a there's a very good book by someone called april dunford called um obviously awesome all about positioning that i highly recommend and one of her things is look when you're first launching a product or something like this do go broad but as soon as you can start tightening it up um so yeah sort of men mention that i think don't don't be scared to 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 focus that positioning you, you you'll be amazed how many people can see that you might be able to transfer those skills to other industries mm. I was a freelancer for only a few months. So I really can't talk about positioning myself as a freelancer, but when I was working on entrepreneurial projects and now most lately DMBA, if you think about DMBA, it only still does one thing. It's just one thing, you know, it's just a business course for designers. And that's what you're usually afraid of in the beginning. Like, oh, is it just this? But I think going deep with one topic kind of gives you the permission then to start talking about more things later down the road. But if you try to be everything in the beginning, everything to everybody, then you're just too vanilla for everybody. But if you try to be, okay, this is one thing. But then once you have that initial roll, ball rolling, you can like venture into new stuff. You know, it's not just fintech anymore. It's something else. And I really like this to pick up also what James said about... Um, once you have deep knowledge in certain industry, that's what a lot of clients want to pay for because they know you've worked with other companies in the same space. And even though you're under NDA, your experience is what they're paying for. Because sometimes I would love to know what companies in my industry are doing. And if there would be freelancers working with different companies in my space, you're just willing to pay more because you know you're getting like the answer, not something somebody just came up with through the design thinking process, nothing against design thinking process, but you know, if somebody has gone through a five, six different projects, they have seen certain failures, they have seen certain tendencies in this industry, and that's just what you're paying for. So I wanted to ask you on the building on this, how do you see positioning and pricing being re related? Or maybe if you have any stories of how your own prices changed when you changed positioning. It's a good question. It's a very, very good question. And I'm I'm trying to think of which way to approach it. Because it's you you're not sure how much everyone else is making or charging. You're not sure how much that if you're working through a consultancy, how much they're charging you out at, what their percentage are they want to make, whether it's thirty percent they want to make, whether it's fifty percent, or even if they're charging at 100% more than what you're charging. All, all you can have is a feeling of how much you're worth. And that takes some time to work out. Uh, I would say that I immediately increased my pricing when I went up by seniority. So, which I think is quite natural. I think everyone does that. So... <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me, moving from junior to mid to senior to 
high level strategist or consultant, you just immediately move your pricing up with that. And you don't know, you don't know if you're charging too much until someone says, no, I'm not gonna pay that. And I would recommend everyone pushing up their price probably on a yearly basis and just and and using that as a as a marker and waiting for clients to come back and say oh no maybe that's too much um i've got some things that i i use specifically for the uk market there's a company called cogs agency and they release a salary report every year and it classifies it in experience um it classifies it as a day rate or a yearly package and it's a really really good marker for people who are struggling pricing themselves to just look at that at that pricing what because they do a, a survey across the industry and they survey some like 2000 different designers so their data actually is pretty solid and the other way that you can also do is if you talk to a recruitment it's very different in it's very, very different in each country how freelancing works. In the UK, it's quite mature in terms of you've got recruitment companies who represent you. And you can just talk to them and say, how much should I be charging myself out of? I've got this month, this amount of experience, this is my portfolio. What should I be charging? And if a recruitment consultant is any good, they'll be able to tell you straight away how much you should be charging. I feel like I'm... Can you can trust, you trust them? them? Well, no, of course you can't. Um, <laughs> because they're, they're, always, they're always looking at number one, right? They're, they're looking at how much percentage they're going to make as well. And, but, but it's good data to have. That's the thing. I, you don't know... Mm how much you should be charging until really you work full-time for a company and you start understanding how much they're charging you out at. Because that, that was the big eye-opener for me. Mm. Uh, when, when I know that I was getting a salary of a few hundred pounds or euros or dollars or whatever you want to call it, but a few hundred a day, and then seeing the pricing sheet of the consultancy charging me out and, you're like, and your, head, your mind kind of explodes. Yeah. 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 Uh, before you go, Tom, just to share one story. So when I joined the design agency, um, I studied business before that. So I had to learn design like while I was there. And most of my colleagues were just designers um, who were not interested in the business side. Um, but there was one like sales meeting every week where we discussed about upcoming projects and so on. And I was always most interested in like in the price you know how much are we charging for this project and i would try to talk to the people selling the 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 project to see how they calculate this price and there was a spreadsheet with like daily rates and stuff and that was my most like the best way to actually learn how this business works and to see how much we are being shipped off for <laughs> in a way so if there's a way to figure out this, and in most companies, I mean, usually design agencies are pretty open in terms of the culture. So if you just keep asking, if you're an internal person, then they will somehow show you this. Uh, if, if nothing else, at least like the ranges, you know. Um, and that's a really good number to have because it kind of get, lets you know what the top companies are charging for. You probably can't do the same, but you know, you at least have now something to work with. How was it for you, Tom? Yeah, I think pricing and is one of those things that a lot of design, designers sort of squirm about, um, don't like talking about money and rates and things like that. So I think it's healthy we're having that discussion. I wish more designers would talk more openly about money, I think, because very often our value is understated. Um, James mentioned a great resource there around um, publishing day rates. There's one, there's a sort of, I guess matchmaking agency in the UK for um, freelancers and companies called Uno Juno that does a similar thing. And I know so many designers who have fallen off their chair when they realise how much more they could have been charging. Um, so I, th I think 
talking more about about money is, is healthy it is design and i think we often very much see it as a sort of dirty area you know uh, there's a lot of virtue kind of wrapped up in uh in design which I, I love that side of it but very often we're uncomfortable talking about about money and value um so that's one thing i would say talking talking about it more is really is really healthy but then value is so subjective so actually pricing can be really hard and i think it actually becomes harder as you get more senior um you know the, the things that might have taken you a few days when you're a junior or a mid-level and you might have charged a day rate for that maybe maybe you can do that now in a day still deliver the same value but actually be shortchanging yourself by just working it out on an hourly or a daily billing um and that's where it starts to get really challenging and the more senior you get of how you price yourself and i, I find that a challenge too i think the, the kind of holy grail um is something called value pricing um which i know a lot of a lot of people would love to get to which is where your pricing is based off the value you generate for the business that's that's one that I've, I, I'm, I've yet to really crack. I'm feeling more confident having the conversation, but it usually helps me to secure a good fixed rate or a better day rate by having a conversation around the value I'm generating rather than having my, um, my fee attached to the value that I'm going to generate for an organization. So very often in value pricing, it'll be right. Say I'm going to design a great conversion funnel for you and it might um, give you an uptick of, I don't know, 50k per month um, in revenue I want you know 20% of that or something and you negotiate that way it's a very hard conversation to have um, people like Blair, Blair Enns and Christo done some kind of great conversations around this this whole subject that I highly recommend I recommend getting more comfortable talking about the value you generate when it comes to design because that will help unlock um, probably better, better rates and things like that um, and yeah, I kind of I kind of move between day rate and fixed rate for most of my work, and it really depends on the type of project. Um, and to to James's point around you know, agencies in fintech, I've I found that in in some to some clients I seem really expensive, <laughs> and to some I seem really affordable. So I'm working with a financial services company at the moment. Um, and compared to what they pay uh, like big global agencies for senior consultants, I seem like a bargain and I'm flexible and um, I come with a whole bunch of other benefits and no layers of bureaucracy and project management, which can be quite appealing. But then, you know, a pre-seed startup looking at maybe a fixed rate that I'm putting out there or something like that, I have to work like super hard for, for to show the value because they might be looking at someone on Fiverr or, you know, a, a more junior freelancer because they've not seen the value that design can deliver. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, that conversation has to be different for different audiences and in certain contexts you'll seem like a bargain and others you'll have to work really hard to kind of express value. What about you, James? Like, do you do day rates, fixed rates, or value-based pricing? Value-based pricing, I absolutely love. So, I, I love I love value-based pricing. I, if you're going direct to client, you can do it. Uh, but if you're being, if you're using a recruitment consultant, say, or you're going through an agency and they're, for want of a better term, farming you out as a contractor or consultant. Uh, it's, it's usually always going to be a day rate. So again, I tend to put in quite a high day rate and I've now got to that point where we have a com generally have a conversation uh, nine times out of ten of, well, could you maybe do something a bit better than that? Um, not always, not always. Uh, last, last couple of ones have not been that actually, but one very, very recent one was actually. Um, but I too assigned to Blair Ends and to Christo about the value-based pricing and Jonathan Stark as well is probably one of my favorite ones on that. And why is that? Because if you're running a package like a design sprint, which is a one-week package, or if you put it in a package like AJ and Smart does over four weeks, you've got a particular start and end and you're not being brought on as a consultant to just to work with the client or work through the problem over days or what might be weeks or even months or even years 
And I've worked with consultants who are literally in banks, large organization for years, and they work as a consultant and, and a very good rate is that. But if you're, if you're selling a specific set of services like Design Sprint or you're talking about a specific outcome like Tom's talking about, then sometimes you can deliver that very quickly. It might be just be a day or a few days or a few weeks. And that's when you have to have that value-based pricing. So let's, let's, I mean, let's just be, talk about money. So, cause I, I actually love talking about money now and I love sitting down with a client and I like saying to them, okay, so this problem you've got, what's, how valuable is it to you? How, first of all, how important is it, this project to you? Is it, is it something you need to solve right now or can it wait a year? And so you can start feeling their urgency, right? And this is all stuff that we've all learned from those people we talked about just now. And once you start understanding if it's really urgent, then you can know that you can start charging a bit more because you're probably the problem to this, you're, you're sorry, the solution to this urgent problem they have. And then once you know the urgency, you can then start talking about the, the dollars, the dollar sign. And, you know, how much is this, is this project worth to you? How much revenue are you going to be bringing in? I always ask that how much revenue is going to be coming in through this if we solve this. So if it is like 50,000, like Tom mentioned, then you can start having that conversation of 20% or 5%. Whatever you feel about, whatever you feel is right, you can then start pitch that. And now I run workshops and the last workshop we ran, I, I ran, we charged $7,500 for an hour and a half workshop. So that's that's pretty good, right? As a freelancer, you wouldn't be charging $7,500 for an hour and a half of your time. Or you, you would try, but you probably wouldn't get that. So... Mm. First of all, you've got to wrap it up in such a way that the client's going to buy it for that. You've got to show the value, the outcomes they're going to get for that. And once you've packaged it up and you're able to sell that to the client, they're going to pay for it because you're solving a problem in these workshops that we run that doesn't guarantee, but it helps them to bring in revenue of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and this is actually referring to something in NFTs, which is another business I work in as well, business area. Um, but it's it's how you position it, right? It's it's definitely possible to charge at a fixed rate and a very high fixed rate if you know that you can deliver the solution that they so desperately need. And desperate in a good way, right? It's urgent for them. And you can deliver that solution. I want to dig deeper into this 7,500 workshop for an hour. Um, hour first hour. of all, like, how did you know that this is... Sorry, hour and a half. <laughs> so how did you know that this is a good price? And then uh, another thing that's related to the pricing that often we don't talk about is the payment terms. So once you figure out that's the price, 7,500... You know, how did the client pay for this upfront? Is it 90 day delivery or how did you negotiate this part? Okay, so first question, how do we get to that number? So yes, I, I took it from my experience in design sprints and selling design sprints, a weekly engagement or a full weekly engagement, doing those workshops and learning from AJ and Smart who are very public in how much they charge. So they are down on record. Jonathan Courtney, if you're listening to this, I love you so much. Uh, you, you actually said on a podcast with Jake Knapp that you charge 20,000 euros a week for Design Sprint and you sell that in a four-week package. So about 80,000 for a month's work. And that's about three people in that doing that and delivering that. You can start then scaling back and, and designing your own workshops, whether an hour and a half or a day or whatnot, and you can start understanding how much to charge. I've charged fifteen hundred for and pounds for doing a a value proposition workshop. The client got 
so much value out of that. That was completely undercharged, horribly undercharged. And the particular workshop we're talking about now, this strategy workshop, we charged that first of all at $5,000. We didn't get any pushback, zero pushback for that number. And we also, to your second question, charged in advance. We're not going to hold this session for you until you give us the money. So once we got the money wired to us in our bank account, we would then run the session. And so we increased the price to 7500 We still don't get pushback for that number. We still deliver incredible value for the client. They are once they implement this strategy, they are literally bringing in revenue of hundreds of thousands of dollars on these these strategies that we help them put together. So if anything, I think we're undercharging <laughs> for doing an hour and a half workshop. <laughs> and and we give a little bit of a report after that. But generally, it's the workshop and you take away the, the Miro board, the virtual whiteboard with you and the knowledge from that. And if you implement it, as we've laid out, we've co-created together, it will work. It works. And we've worked with clients now where we've done these strategy workshops and uh, they've actually bought more. I said, wow, that was really good. We think that was really valuable. We want to book another four of those with you, right? And then we've run another four of those with you. And I honestly don't think design people charge enough money for what they do. Um, and it is possible to charge more money. You just need to walk in and be confident about the value that you're delivering. So we've we've delivered these workshops now in a set of seven steps and we've designed it. We have a beautiful deck. We run through the client. What exactly we're going to deliver over these seven workshops, these seven steps that are around an hour each sometimes even under 30 minutes. And they can buy them at $3,000 a, a pop or they can put them in three in one for an hour and a half and buy it for 7,000. And we then sometimes stay on with that client and implement that strategy with them as well. We provide a team to actually implement that. And we're just seeing the fruition of a particular engagement like that and it's working. and. They're, they're just saying, okay, now we trust you. Now we really do trust you <laughs> because we can see that the revenue targets, the numbers that you put in and predicted are being hit and we want more of that. So, yeah, that that's how we came to the number, just by testing the numbers with different clients, with different, um, different engagements and kind of increasing our confidence to what we think it should be. And in fact, I think it probably should still be more. And um, we increased it by 50% quite recently, um, a couple of weeks ago, and people were still saying yes. And then we generally, if especially if it's a new client, we ask for payment up front. Another cool part of this story is that you're productizing the service. You know, you're taking a something that could be sold as a service and you're packaging it as a workshop. And that this, I think, also increases the value of uh, what you're selling because you can with a product you can s kind of see or at least have more control of what's going to happen and at least more people can imagine what they would get out of this engagement um, but I also want to hear from you Tom like what are your stories with the payment terms any horror stories any tips for listeners I have to say, I think I've been very fortunate that I've never really, I've only had one late payer and that was just an admin issue. Um, my, when I, when I, this is kind of quite, quite dull compared to what we talked about, but in, you know, in admin terms, um, when I'm working on day rate, it tends to be, I, I'll, I'll do like a, a month's work or a week's work, depending on the, the engagement terms and then, um, payment within seven or 28 days. Um, that's pretty standard. Um, and like I say, I've never really had late payers when it comes to fixed price work, um, or retainer work, which I've done a little bit more of recently, which has been really interesting for fitting things in, you know, a couple of held days around other work that tends to be 50% upfront for a fixed price piece of work and then 50% on delivery. And for retainers, it's all paid in advance. 
Um, so it varies, um, and very often the payment terms depend on if you're working through an agency. Very often they'll have like particular payment terms. So um, yeah, um, never never really had any issues working that way. When it comes to value pricing, which is something like I say, I'm getting more confident having the conversation about value pricing. It's not something I've pulled off yet as far as my fee will be attached to a particular maybe percentage uptick in revenue that's an interesting one for me as far as like how you how you measure that how you put trust in a client um giving you the right metrics to be paid effectively um i'm hoping to get to a point where i can test that 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 stuff out i um but yeah i think the conversation around value pricing is an interesting one to be having even if you're not ending up um, having your fee attached to that value because you are having conversations about the, the revenue you will generate or um, leads you will bring in or if you're in charity donors that you might bring in to, to an organisation. So I think it's a very um, prudent conversation for designers to start having. And I think that's why having more business acumen and kind of talking more about value it separates designers at the moment. If you're just talking in terms of deliverables uh, and usual tools and processes, is that is really just table stakes at the moment. It's very hard to compare you to someone who's charging maybe a third of what you might. Um, so I think becoming more confident in in that, uh, expressing the value that you bring, um, practice, practice talking mm -hmm. about it. I think. Yeah, I think like in your pitching process if you start asking about metrics and about kpis that in itself just the act of asking about metrics about business goals tells the client that you are thinking about their success not just just about your deliverables because the client's biggest fear is oh i'm dealing with a designer who just wants to create something that's beautiful and they don't care about if it's going to work or not so just the mere act of asking about what is your goal how would you measure it they're going to be happy that you're asking about it so it's just a matter of doing it and i think it sets you apart it helps you raise prices and understand what price to charge so i think it's like a nice little hack for this process mm. it all starts raising the bar for, for our whole industry if more of us are talking more confidently about this stuff um and I kind of wanted to something I wanted to mention on the on the subject of kind of payment as well, and having confidence, kind of a payment, and having confidence, having these kind of mm. conversations with clients, and not feeling like you're going to frighten them off, is having some buffer. Like I I I, I know a lot of uh, people who don't leave a lot of money in their businesses as contractors, and right now. Like it's a hard message to say because you know cost of living is 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 what it is. But if you are in a position where you can leave a bit more uh, money in the business, I think it just really frees you up to kind of maybe stand your ground a little more around rates, maybe stand your ground around value, and and just have a more confidence knowing you. I don't need to take this work. Um, design contracting is extremely lucrative, and it's you know. It can be hard to resist taking that 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 capital outright, but I would highly recommend people have enough capital in there that they can take a few risks, play around with these kind of conversations. It, it frees you up enormously. Um, but yeah, just just something that I feel quite is quite an important aspect of running a successful design consultancy is having that that cushion. Cool. Did you forget anything? I think buffer is a big part of it positioning, pricing, terms. Is there anything that you, James, or Tom wanted to add to this topic before we close it? I think there's other things we could have touched on. You know, the whole part equity mm. piece. Um, sorry, James. And, no, I think the equity one is actually a very, very good point. That is something we should talk about. And, and I, I just, when you're saying, Tom, that contracting is extremely lucrative, it is extremely lucrative, but you're also getting paid by day. Look, 99% of the time, contractors are on a day rate. They're getting paid day by day by day by day. And what I would really love to see, probably quite selfishly from my experience of you know doing those workshops and, and, and selling things at a fixed cost profitably, is how do we move from 
being a contractor and doing a day rate to being a contractor and selling at fixed price and 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 selling a mm. at a fixed fixed outcome with a fixed rate because I don't really see many designers that I don't see the industry just generally doesn't work like that they generally see it's a bum on a seat they're going to be producing this stuff for me today and I'm probably going to need to buy a hundred days of that that person um, so that that's one thing that came to my mind but I think the equity piece if we want to speak about that as well is is a, is a really interesting thing right someone promising you three percent of equity um, in exchange for your services is quite frightening and also quite tempting as well, especially if you can, if you know that you can deliver upon that. But there's a lot of other wheels turning that you don't necessarily have power over. So if there's if, if there's other things outside forces affecting your deliverables, even though that you keep your side of the bargain and you put in a great strategy, but they're going to pull in the team to execute that strategy, but they don't execute it well, then you can miss out on that on that equity as such, um, because you didn't have control over the execution team. But I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that the equity side of things. I think it's very much ends up being a hedge, doesn't it, for for designers who are comfortable doing it. You, I think you'd you'd go into it knowing that the chances of me getting a return on this way of being paid. So maybe it's worth us taking a few steps back um, for for listeners who maybe aren't familiar. But um, this is typically in early stage organisations, maybe pre seed seed stage startups where. They maybe don't have a lot of funding, but would really benefit from senior design input. Maybe can't stomach your day rate or your fixed price at the moment. And therefore, there might be a negotiation path of, okay, we will give you some level of equity, a share of the business um, in exchange for your design efforts. And sometimes that is um, part equity, part rate or it's all equity or sweat equity is very often how this is referred to. And yeah, to your point, James, there's, there's an enormous amount of trust you need to put in that organization that they're going to deliver and that you might get a return on that. So let's say you said, okay, I'm not going to take any, any rate, but I want, you know, 5% uh, of the business for, you know, several months of, of, of effort. I'm there. Um, you might never see a return on that. And I think, yeah, you would need to do your due diligence and maybe do some paid work first with that organization to to see, okay, do they seem like they've got product market fit or I can help them get there? They're receptive to design. Um, they're starting to get interest from from investors, like they said they would. And, and then, okay, maybe you want a longer-term relationship. I'm interested. And, you know, if that... If that start really went somewhere and let's say I IPO'd one day, 10, five, 10 years down the line, you could, you could, you know, really do well out of that. That could be some retirement money. Um, but in most instances, as we know, startups fail. So, you know, again, to my point around having some, some, some money in the bank, I think again, it frees you up to say, okay, I don't need the capital on this one. I can start playing around with these other, these other models of getting paid. So I think it's a really interesting one, but to your point, James, I think you need to have a good sense of what makes a good business and a good startup. And again, learning about business, right? Understanding what the, the mechanics of a, uh, of an early stage organization, what's going to you know, help them, help them succeed. And also us as designers having that mindset to, to, to help them. And when you've got skin in the game, you know, you're, you're going to want them to succeed as well. Additional perspective here is how investors think about uh, investing in startups. So typically they look at, okay, we need to make 20 bets or 10 bets for one of them to work out. And if one of them works out, it pays off for everything else. So I would be thinking about this equity the same way. Like, okay, then if I try this out, how can I de-risk somehow? Either I need to do 20 of these so I can even have a chance that it works out or I maybe need to do a hybrid. You know, I take a little bit of equity, but still need to cover the expenses. You know, maybe you won't be as profitable with this project. You just cover the expenses and then you take some equity on top. So you don't go all in. So because this, this like equity pricing is, 
it's very close to the topic of risk. You know, how do you run risk for your own organization as a contractor? You know, maybe you have one client at a time who is just equity, but the rest is paying your bills, or you have so much uh, money in the bank that you can actually for a year just go out and just do 10 projects and that's your startup year in a way. So there are different approaches to it, but the, the name of the game is like managing the risk and having enough bets that one of them can even pay off. Because if you just do if you just do one, it's a lottery. But if you try to do more, I think then numbers and the math and the stats start to be on your side. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that I had this conversation recently. I worked with a pre-stage company for a while and was kind of interested in if we wanted to work longer term, would there be the conversation of equity? And uh, very often they want you to come in perm to do, to, to take on um, that. Um, very often there's what's known as like an options pool of shares in a, in a company that they will um, give to like trusted advisors that they've had a long-term relationship with um, on non-exec directors, things like that. So very often it's kind of baked into the share model of a startup. Um, so, you know, it's, it's mm. a familiar thing, but I think you really, really have to show enormous value um, as a, as a, someone who wants to continue being an external um, person rather than coming in house. Um, but no, I do think it's interesting. Mm. Because we have to be aware that equity is the most expensive um, way to get funded. Why most expensive? Because if you go to the bank, you pay off 5, 10% interest rate in these days, 2% interest rate, but it used to be more. And then, you know, you keep the company, but if you're giving up the equity, this this is potentially for a startup, their biggest equity. <laughs> equity is their biggest equity. So from the perspective of the founder, you need to really bring something extraordinary that they cannot buy with money. Otherwise, they would rather just pay somebody, you know? It needs to be something they cannot buy because that's the way their founders are thinking even about their co-founders is can I buy this on the market? If the answer is yes, they don't need to, they don't need you as a co-founder that you can just have you as an employee. So a big part of this story is also getting to know the mindset of these people, like the founders and how they're thinking about it and why would I even do this deal with you? So um, like the first step would be learning about math and stats and learning about this world of the startups or like reading some books on uh, angel investing. That, that's probably th what it is. It's like you are being an angel investor with your time. Absolutely. Cool. I think this whole topic like warrants a separate episode, equity uh, pricing, and we should maybe do that at yeah. some point. It is. Yeah. No, it is. It's I can see you both yeah, thinking. Yeah, think and about it. <laughs> I, I, I do think it's, um, yeah, potentially one where so many designers are messing out. There's so many like developers and people like that who end up, you know, kind of being early stage kind of founding members of startups. But yeah, designers, it's still a bit of a rarity. Um, and there's, there's good people out there doing like trying to change that message. And um, mm. yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know if this is relevant to the podcast or not, but something I wanted to, something that I came across recently that I thought was quite interesting from a pricing and positioning. Um, friend of mine who used to work with an agency he's been freelance for a little while now he has actually set himself up um with a subscription model for nice. his design practice um, which is really interesting and it's you know it's expensive several thousand pounds every month um but he's making some promises around delivery and quality that I've, i think is fascinating and i haven't spoken to him about it yet so i don't want to kind of mention him or kind of um infer mm. too much about it but i i have never really seen someone uh, position themselves in that way and he's very much talking about what good value he will be compared to a big agency or an internal employee the flexibility that's involved in it um and he's a shithole designer as well <laughs> i've no doubt he could be able to turn around quite a lot of clients so yeah i need to talk to him about that and i think that's yeah you might want to talk to him <laughs> about about that at some point <laughs> Then you'll need to give yeah. me his name, but let's talk about <laughs> it later. Uh, one question about this. So how is this subscription different from a retainer? I, to be honest, I don't know enough about it. Um, Got it. At the moment, yeah. I can't tell you more about it. Um, I guess it, you, know, you could view it as a sort of retainer. 
Um, I don't think he's dedicated. Retainers tend to be like set day, number of days that you are retaining for the client. I don't mm-hmm. think he's committing to that. I think he's just saying you'll, you'll get good stuff delivered. It might take him a day. It might take him a week. And he's kind of t- factoring that risk into his pricing model. Got um, it. He's very, very good. Very fast. Um, that helps. So, yeah, I think I think he could be on something there if, if that's the kind of work you want to do. He does a lot of stuff in space. I think you probably are both more confident in the me and sort of Web3 paid space as well. Yeah, so I'd love I, to I might them, especially Web3. He's a really interesting guy. Mm. Would love to take you up on that. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, James. That was a lovely hour chatting about money, chatting about positioning, something our community needs to do more of. So um, I'll think about doing one more just on equity and uh, I'll ping you both. Um, but yeah, that's everything in today's episode. Um, if you found this interesting and want to learn more about business, check out the mini MBA, which is the seven day email course, which you can find at d.mba slash mini minus MBA. That's all. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye.